0: Hi, this is Jill Harrison, Executive Director of the National Institute on Aging Impact Collaboratory at Brown University. Welcome to the Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speakers and ask them the interesting questions that you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of the companion Grand Rounds content can be found at impactcollaboratory.org. Thanks for joining. Welcome, everybody. I'm Susan Mitchell. I'm one of the principal investigators of the IMPACT Collaboratory, and welcome to our podcast today, where we're picking up the discussion from our grand rounds last week entitled Deprescribing Education Versus Usual Care for Patients with Cognitive Impairment and Primary Care Clinicians, the Optimized Pragmatic Cluster Randomized Trial. So I'm here with doctors Liz Bayless and Cynthia Boyd to the investigators on the study who gave uh, grand rounds last week. Welcome, Liz and Cynthia. Thank you for having us. Thanks very much. First of all, congratulations on a very well executed pragmatic trial. There were so many successes in this trial. But to cut to the chase, I personally would characterize the results as inconclusive in that you saw a trend, expected trend, but not a significant effect in your primary outcome of reducing medications for people living with dementia. Unfortunately, for those of us in this world of pragmatic trials, this is too often the case. And I I think the best we can do at this point is to try to sort out why. You know, when you go through these types of inconclusive trials, you think about, was there a trial design element at fault, such as lack of power, miscalculation of the ICC, suboptimal choice of endpoint? Was it poor implementation, which in your case, probably not since it was such a simple nudge trial? Or does the intervention simply not work? In this case, maybe too light a touch. So I really want to ask you guys what your thoughts are and what underlies the primary reason for these main findings. I think that a key piece
1: may be that we didn't focus on people who were on a large enough number of meds. We can't say that conclusively, but there was a suggestion that the benefit may have reached statistical significance among those people who were on more medications. And right, this makes sense, given that we were focused on number of meds and number of potentially inappropriate medications as our primary endpoint, that there's greater opportunity among those people who are on a larger dose of polypharmacy. I think that's the first piece that I'd add in response to your question and I'd love to hear Liz's thoughts about some of the other pieces.
2: You know I, I agree this the statistical results are, are clearly inconclusive and we learned a ton. <laughs> from the trial the results that we did get i agree with cynthia do suggest that future similar interventions and similar sorts of undertakings should explore targeting people older adults who are taking more chronic medications to start with and i would say that that's not just due to the results that we found in our study but that we have had a International Advisory Committee for the trial, and some of the advisors at different points have posed that question themselves based on their own experience in the de-prescribing intervention world. So I think that's something that remains to be seen, but, but certainly is a question that was brought up by our results. Susan, I think your question about, or your maybe implied question about how do we understand our results and accept our results in pragmatic trials, which are by definition, often have multifactorial influences on the outcomes, including care delivery styles in different clusters that are randomized, including implementation factors that would not be present in a very highly controlled individual level trial. And then of course, the intervention qualities as well as the power and sample size and that sort of thing. I think that's a fascinating and very large question that probably deserves a podcast all its own. And so I'm not sure how I would, whether I could speak to it in general. I think in terms of the optimized study, uh, we were very careful about our power calculations. So I'm not too worried about that design issue. It was a very light touch intervention, and it was an educational intervention delivered to individuals who, by definition, have cognitive impairment. And so we don't know what the effect was at the level of the recipient of the educational materials. And we've talked to a number of people who, well, Welcome to the intervention, but in terms of actionability, I think that is a an outstanding question. Maybe some of these light-touch interventions have a place in terms of accustoming patients and providers to think about deprescribing as much as deprescribing individual medications on a specific time frame.
0: You got right at the, the heart of the question. But to me, <laughs> after you take a breath, the next burning question is sort of what's next. So how do we learn from these lessons? What we, You really established a terrific infrastructure in this healthcare system, which I'll ask you about in a minute. And you, you have an important problem that needs to be solved. So how do we leverage these lessons? And so if we sort of by either as suggested by some of the members of the Grand Rounds audience, and you both alluded to now, perhaps the intervention was too light or not targeted specifically enough. How do you augment it? Do you target folks just on over six, seven meds? Do you now, you engage a pharmacist. What are your thoughts in the deprescribing world thoughts on how to strengthen the potency of this deprescribing intervention while still making it feasible to implement in a complex healthcare system? I guess I'm asking partly, is there a next step in your mind?
1: I do think that thinking about deprescribing is something that represents behavior change and the components of behavior change, both for the provider's and for the patients is an important frame. I think that there's increasing recognition that as we think of de-implementation in general, of which deprescribing is, I think, one piece, that that is an important way to think about it. I do think trying to understand who are the right patients to be targeting and how do you make the most of that healthcare system that you're in. I'm going to let Liz to KP Colorado and the great infrastructure and set up of delivery of primary care and integration with pharmacists that they have there. But one thing that I think about not coming from a, a place that you know has all of those pieces put together in, in sort of the exact same way is how do we think about deprescribing across right, our very heterogeneous healthcare systems? across the across the country you know we were focused on primary care like the way primary care is implemented across the country i think there's a lot of a, a lot of work to still be done to figure out the right ways to approach prescribing.
2: Yeah, I I agree with all of that. And I would add that how do we learn from what we have learned so far includes really taking a close look at implementation and entering the world of implementation science to rigorously study and understand the effects of conducting the intervention um, for the patients and their care partners and for the clinicians and for the system as a whole. And and that's a tall order. We're going to start exploring that. We aren't going to learn everything, because that that would be difficult. But we're going to learn what we can from, the, from a rigorous look at the implementation of both the original intervention and also the subsequent delayed control intervention, which is currently ongoing. I think part of that involves learning about what happens, more about what happens at the point of care, especially in primary care, that's a very full place. And putting more demands on the point of care is something we need to propose, I think, with with caution and understanding. I think there's more to be learned about patient preferences for education on topics that may run contrary to messages they're accustomed to hearing over the courses of their chronic illnesses, such as maybe it's time to stop medications and this is why, and how they'd like to learn about that. And, and I think in tandem with that, and we're starting this effort also, there's much to be learned about how to interact with clinicians and educate clinicians about that same uh, that same topic.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, what you're saying almost bleeds in again to modifying the intervention to be a little bit more potent in one way or another, because in your study, correct me if I'm wrong, the the measure of implementation, again, since protocol was you send these materials to these people and that's, you send it, you have control. So in that sense, that's done. I guess the, the subsequent steps, how many open the envelope, how many conversations there are are slightly different questions. Again, I'm getting at the idea of measuring implementation, but in this case, what is the evaluation measure? What is the implementation endpoints? How far downstream? Or do you just say, well, we measure, we, we sent 100% of our people these information and so our implementation protocol is 100%. Yeah,
2: I, I guess, and Cynthia, I, I would welcome your thoughts. I, I'm not sure that measuring is the right word when we're talking about implementation. And, and just as a caveat, I am not an implementation scientist. We've engaged with Justin Turner who's an international recognized implementation scientist to help us understand this, but I think we need to understand the implementation and the effects of different factors within the implementation process. I don't personally know how to measure the implementation in ways that are quite qualitative. You know, there are process measures, how many people open envelopes, you know, for example, but I think there's probably more nuance to that that we would really need to understand in order to answer your question of what does a more intensive intervention look like uh, that's got a, a heavier touch and doesn't become so heavy that it's unsustainable in the hands of the people who need to use it.
1: One thing I'll just say, right, is though so there have been deep prescribing interventions that have really been like very active in terms of you know targeting specific medicines really actually like the intervention itself is sort of directing what medicine should be changed and I think a key piece is that we left the the prescribing decisions in the hands of the and part of the reason it was pragmatic and able to be done across a big health system was that we really were leaving the actual decision-making between the primary care clinician and the patient and their family with input from the pharmacist as they chose to do with the resources that are already available. I think the broad tent right? as we think about more intensive interventions, they may actually become less pragmatic and less light touch and require more of an investment of resources. So I think it's all sort of a complex milieu, but just wanted to make that point.
0: So just picking up on that a little bit. So at IMPACT, we're focused on pragmatic trials and people living with dementia, and we've had several pilot project applicants and demo project applicants, demonstration projects, proposing to take an existing deprescribing intervention that's been tested in a sort of a general older population and then adapt it in this particular application to people living with dementia. And so we've struggled with how much adaptation is too much adaptation. So introducing this to people living with dementia, this type of intervention has, you know, some challenging design considerations, like who do you involve? Is it just the person living with dementia or the care partner? Who do you send materials to? How do you adapt materials for general older population to people living with dementia and how do you deliver it? So, you know, we struggle with, you know, can we just adapt those generic, older persons deprescribing interventions and make the jump to even just a pilot PCT? Or do you have to go back to an earlier part in the NIH stage model with efficacy testing of the adapted program? Can you just comment on adaptations of deprescribing interventions specifically for people with dementia and then this sort of question of how much adaptation is too much adaptation? It's a tough question.
1: I personally would say that we should definitely be learning from existing interventions. To me, one of the, the key pieces about adapting an intervention for the older adult population in general to people with dementia is the portion of older adults that are going to have an involved, we call them care partner that helps with medication decisions and also medication regimen implementation is going to go up as the presence of cognitive impairment Increases obviously some of the general adult population may have cognitive impairment, whether or not it's recognized by whatever system or intervention that's tackling it. I mean, hopefully those folks are not getting excluded, but we know in general, right? That people with cognitive impairment or dementia tend to get excluded from a lot of research studies. But I think a key piece is how do you Think about it, recognizing that the older adult with dementia is very likely, but not not always going to have a care partner that's involved in medication decisions or the implementation of the medication regimen. I think that's a place where we, you know, we try to ad- adapt and learn from the literature more broadly, but that there's a lot of rich experience in the dementia space about how to how to do that. And so I personally think that there's a value of sort of trying to bring what we know about deprescribing and what we know about dementia, trying to bring those two pieces
2: together. And you know, one example is around the care care partner space. I agree with that, Cynthia. And to pick up on your mention of care partners, I, I think conceptually that this sort of adaptation is an invitation for, for fairly sophisticated stakeholder engagement as part of the process engaging patients, care partners, family members, their providers, to really understand from them what adaptations of existing interventions might be particularly helpful and to which do they think their populations would be very receptive. And it's actually kind of great, I think, to start with an existing intervention that people and stakeholders can react to as compared to developing an intervention from scratch and asking people to help you develop it, which is also fun, but a, a lot more work for the stakeholder populations. I think stakeholder engagement is, is just crucial for this. And if you want to go in an even farther direction to sort of the issue of changing the cultural perceptions about deprescribing, there's the world of community-based participatory research that has methodology that draws on community beliefs and, and priorities and that sort of thing that, that might have a role in these sorts of adaptations also.
0: Very helpful. So my last question is sort of in the positive vein here. So a major success of your trial was the partnership you had with the healthcare system which is is crucial for conducting a pragmatic trial and for those listening and for those learning what were the key ingredients to this successful partnership and how how did you accomplish it? I think
2: all the credit goes to the <laughs> to the receptive clinicians and the clinic leaders who are willing to work with us. From my perspective, being within the system, factors that, that are particularly helpful with implementing a pragmatic intervention, I would say, include having the topic be of a relatively high priority for clinical leadership, and that can be in the quality domain and an operational domain and a certain aspect of care delivery. Big systems are often guided somewhat by priorities and to have the intervention aligned with those is very, very helpful. Another factor is trying to have an intervention that has the potential to make the clinician's job, at least in the long term and maybe even in the short term, easier rather than adding work. And so if there is a request of the clinicians to have that be sort of manifested in a way that is likely to make the care better, the relationship with the patient better, and the outcomes better and and not add substantially to the workload. And then there's, of course, just the receptivity of the providers who were quite interested in the topic, which was quite terrific, as were the patient stakeholders we talked to earlier on.
0: I want to thank you both for being here today and most importantly for your work and for this trial and continuing the learning as we conduct EPCTs in people living with dementia. So really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you both.
2: Thank you. And and thanks to the Impact Collaboratory for all of their support of of this work and for featuring it.
1: I agree wholeheartedly. And we, from the optimized trial are very happy to have shared this work with the impact collaboratory and we continue to learn from you and also note that the usd prescribing research network it has been excited to partner and share ideas with you so thank you for the
0: opportunity great well the feelings entirely mutual thank you both have a great day thank you for listening to today's impact collaboratory grand rounds podcast please be on the lookout for our next grand rounds and podcast next month